Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. In this episode, we'll join our moderator, arts educator, and cultural historian, Lucy Charkin, in conversation with Bridget Watson-Payne, editorial director with Chronicle Books, and author of How Time is on Your Side. We'll discuss how to reinvent your relationship with time and create a way to get everything done. The passion projects, the endless to-do lists, and of course, just making time for yourself. Enjoy. Bridget, you wrote, we need to get going. We have big, important things to do, and to do them, we must get all the crap out of our way clear the underbush, banish the detritus, muster our resources and get crystal clear about what's worth it and what's not. We must find a mix of practical tools and big ideas that allow us to make friends with time. So before we get to the practical tips, and I know everybody's here kind of waiting to get (laughs) their lists out for, um, I wanted to just kind of look at that uh, idea of... uh, how we work out what's worth it and and what's not. And to frame that really as a question about the value of time. And the beginning of the book, you sort of unpack that a little bit in terms of how society values time. Is everybody's time created equally? Um, How is time valued in society and for our own selves? I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what you discovered um, and what experiences led to you sort of unpacking that idea of how you value time for society. It's really key to, I mean, the book, why I wrote the book, the whole situation. And for me, I think um, it largely started, I read a book several years ago now um, called Overwhelmed by an author named Bridget, not Bridget, Bridget Schult. And she's a journalist. I believe she was a Washington Post journalist, something like that. And she felt overwhelmed, and everyone she knew seemed to feel overwhelmed, to have too much to do and not enough time to do it, and to basically be running around freaking out all the time. And she wanted to write a book about it. She wanted to find out what the heck was going on. And being a journalist, what she did, basically the whole of her book, is unpacking why do we feel this way? How did we get here? What are the historical and societal trajectories that put us where we are now. And there's a lot of fascinating stuff in this book. A lot, and I mentioned this in the beginning of my book, that a lot of it is a feminist issue. So women entered the workforce and nothing else changed, right? Like we didn't really figure out what to do with the children. Just everyone pretty much figures that out for themselves. Like uh, some kind of daycare, I don't know. Um, You know, that suddenly households had less person hours to run them and there was no safety net, there was no infrastructure change, there was no societal change to account for that. And that was a big part of it. And then of course technology is a huge part of it and being constantly available to your work is a huge part of it. Um, But also there's this sort of sick badge of honor thing that she uncovers in her book where the word busyness, the meaning of the word to be busy has changed that in the 18th century, if someone said, how are you, and you said, I'm busy, you meant, I'm happily occupied. Like, I have things to do. It is great. Like, I am so pleased with my busyness. Now we mean, 
uh, I'm so busy, but aren't you also kind of impressed with me? Because clearly if I'm this busy, I must be terribly important. And you know, she gives examples from um, people's Christmas letters that they send out where it's just like, we did this and this and this and this and this and blah, blah, you know, like that it's become kind of this one-upmanship in a way of like who can be the most stressed out and the most busy. So that's another like nasty piece of it. And she gets to the end of the book and at the end of the book she starts talking a little bit about what we could do to address some of these things. But that's, she's not a self-help writer, she's a journalist. Mm -hmm. So that's not really her project in this book. Where's the rest? Like, what do we do? What do we do now? If this is how it feels, if this yeah. is how everyone feels, what's the solution? And so then I started reading a lot of other books. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was reading a lot of sort of personal improvement and productivity and time hacking kind of books, which are extremely useful and which, you know, I gleaned a lot of tips and tricks and facts and what, you know. People, how, do, how do different people handle their email? How do they handle their calendars? How do they handle their to-do lists? All of these things. But none of that was quite right either, I felt like. It was all sort of very logical, top-down, like not very friendly, not very empathetic. Um, so then also in this book, at the beginning, she worries that people think this is a bougie problem. People think that this is knowledge workers, by which they mean middle class people. And she goes to a community group for poor working families, people who are working multiple jobs, people who are living in one room apartments, and asks them, like, do you feel like you have enough time? And they all just are like, of course not. Like, and like do you ever feel like you have any time for yourself? And one woman says, maybe when I'm sleeping? Uh, you know, so, oh, and she's making the point that, of course, this is a problem that affects everyone. And in point of fact, it probably affects people more, you know, if you're working multiple jobs, if you don't have enough money, if you're a single mom. Like, that just compounds the problem. And the way that economics and race and gender and all of these factors in our society are just piling on, you know, exacerbating the problem. And that was another point for me. So I'm doing all this reading, I'm thinking about all these issues, and realizing that the book I wanted didn't exist. And what I've sort of realized over the years is when the book I want doesn't exist, then I want to write it. Um, so that was you know, kind of where I started on this and some of the factors that kind of came into play about this is obviously a huge issue for people and how do we kind of claw back a little bit of that preciousness. Yeah, you, you talk about uh, one of the quotes that I wanted to pull out from that first chapter on you know, how to work out the value of time is you talk about the, the reality that the 21st century crunch time affects everyone and that everyone is not the same. So just kind of honoring those differences, which I think is really nice. Tell us a little bit about um, yeah, the, the, that sort of reality of the crunch time and um, in your personal life, really thinking about the value of time. You, you said you, you realized that at some point you realize that after doing all this work that this book didn't exist and that you actually had to do something about it. How did you know when the time was right to write this book about time? Well, I was actually um, talking to my friends before this talk that I went through a period where I wanted to write the book. I had, and it was just called in my head, the time book. I need the time book, I wanna write the time book, the time book. But it was you know, percolating quietly in the back of my mind, but I, didn't actually try and write it for a while because I had total imposter syndrome about it. 
I didn't think I was qualified to write this book because I'm not like an efficiency expert or a productivity guy in a suit who comes into your office and, I don't know, does something. Um, I've never actually had that happen, so I don't actually know what that is, but I think it's a thing. Um, and I felt like there was this certain kind of person who was writing on these topics, and I was worried that there was some type of credentials that I was supposed to have that maybe I didn't have. And then some of my friends and coworkers started pointing out to me, they're like, you seem to be doing a lot. You seem to be getting a lot of things done. You mm -hmm. seem to be wearing a lot of hats. You seem to be making time for a lot of things that are important to you. So maybe that means you are qualified to write this book. <laughs> so maybe you do have something to share. Um, you were mentioning some of the stuff outside of work. And in the book at one point, I kind of break down these different main, the things that for me feel like the main categories that we want to make time for. And some of them are very obvious work family, uh, and I s make a distinction between family and partnership, uh, relationships, and creativity mm -hmm. is another one that's not always included in this, and um, making time for ourselves, to take care of ourselves, and also activism. And that, you know, I was working on this book, whatever, in the era that we live in, sometime after 2016. So <laughs> activism was on my mind. Um, and you know, thinking about how, if you know that the world is on fire and you want to help fix it, but you are so strapped with just your family and your job and, you know, the basics, how can you open up a space for some of those things? And it really does come down to, you know, you were talking about the value of time, but it also comes down to your values. Mm -hmm. That, um, there's a great quote, I don't know if I marked it, but, uh, see if I can find it. Yeah, this person, whoever he is, I just want to be able to tell you what his name is, um, talks about how he realized, here it is, right where I needed it. He realized, I realized that busyness had devoured my values. And the guy who said that is David Sabara. And so he's talking about how when we convince ourselves we're too busy to do anything, then it becomes very, very difficult to live our values because all we're doing is getting the oil changed and getting the groceries and changing the diapers and whatever. And that actually the big important ethical pieces of our life, be that love, be that activism, be that whatever it is, are getting kind of the short end of the stick, so. And in that section, you also talk a little bit about sort of prioritization and the three Ps actually, <laughs> which I thought were actually really easy nuggets to kind of explore together. You talk about really, I suppose, Building your time around your values and valuing your time is really the best way to kind of frame how you can move forward and still feel like you're making the most of the time that you've got. Um, and those three Ps you, you mark as prioritization, procrastination, which I liked a lot, and pockets, which mm -hmm. I took a lot from. Um, be lovely if you could unpack for the people sure. that haven't had the opportunity to read the book yet. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version, but still buy the book from the nice book man. Um, so the book is basically divided into three chunks. And the first chunk are about these three Ps, which is basically about changing our mindset and changing our attitude toward time. And I wanted to talk about that first. I was very tempted being the sort of type A Capricorn person I am. I wanted to get in and talk about the to-do lists and the calendars and the tactics. But I actually think that without a shift in mindset and without re, like doing some big picture thinking, that stuff is gonna get us nowhere. Mm -hmm. like, it best, it's gonna get us, oh look, I'm more efficient so I can cram more junk into my life. Like, bleh. So 
first we have to shift our mindset. Then the middle third of the book is um, interviews with 42 people, very short interviews, it's a short book, about how they make time for, in those categories I was mentioning earlier, marriage, family, work, creativity, et cetera. Um, you know, and the real stories from real regular people about how they're making this stuff work. And then the final section, we wait till the end to talk about actual productivity. Um, but the three Ps that I talk about in the beginning are, um, as you were saying, prioritization. And I think, I've got another quote here, let me see if I can find it, that is so good. And there's, you know, there's some tough love in this book. Like sometimes you need to, it's gotta, it's gotta get a little real and a little harsh to get really to the truth of the matter. So this is Eric Barker, who's like a productivity guy, and he says, Whenever you hear or say, I don't have the time, it's a lie. Often a well-intentioned one, but whatever. We all have 24 hours a day, period. The accurate statement is, it's not a priority. It's like, oh, oh, dude, okay, it's a little, it's a little harsh. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, it's really true that we are in charge of what we spend our time on. We are choosing what to prioritize. And if we just spent four hours doing something, whether consciously or not, that was our priority in that time. And we could have done something different in those four hours. Not entirely, you gotta go to work. You've got certain things that are kind of non-negotiable. But to a large extent, we, when we start thinking about what our real priorities are, I did a podcast with this woman, Tiffany Hahn, who has a podcast called Raise Your Hand, Say Yes. And she mm -hmm. says the way she thinks about this is she envisions a drone with a camera on it following her around all day and being like, remember when you said your value was like playing with your kids, but you're in the kitchen, like on your phone while they're in the other room? Like, and that, you know, she said she, she imagines she's on like the Truman Show. And that, like, if you could watch your life, to what extent would the way you're actually spending your days and hours and minutes align with what you say is important to you? And I don't necessarily judge, like, maybe what you're saying is important to you isn't actually what's important to you. Like, you, it might be a well intentioned lie that I've got a made up example in the book of someone who is procrastinating writing their novel. You know, they're like, I'm gonna write a novel, but they never work on it. They're always instead like texting with their friend. And it can seem as though they're procrastinating, they're not spending their time in accordance with their values, but maybe actually nurturing that friendship is more important to them. Maybe they only think they're supposed to write a novel because they're a sort of a smart literary English major kind of kid and they think that's what you're supposed to do. And really they would prefer to be nurturing their relationships and maybe that's a completely valid choice. So prioritization um, and getting crystal, crystal clear on what our priorities are so that we can then use them to inform how we choose to spend our time. And procrastination, I also have to credit that idea to this other well, dude. Paul Graham seems to talk about uh, good procrastination. Yeah, yeah, it's so good, it's, it's brilliant. There are an infinite number of things you could be doing. No matter what you work on, you're not working on everything else. So the question is not how to avoid procrastination, but how to procrastinate well. And his whole thing is like, put off the dumb things mm -hmm. so that you can focus on the big important things. And his big thing is put off email. Like <laughs> procrastinate your inbox so that you can do the big important creative work. Um, so that idea of good procrastination, the idea of taking things that you know what, the dishes will always be there. Like, they're not going anywhere. Procrastinate that and focus on what really matters. Um, and then the last one is pockets, which is sort of a silly name, but the power of small amounts of time repeated frequently is 
staggering. I talked to a woman for th this book, she's interviewed in there, who wrote two children's books that have been published that are real children's books in five to 10 minute chunks on her phone on the New York subway during her commute. And you know, she just said, she said she, it only took her a few months to write each one because children's books are really short, but she probably opened up the document on her phone you know, hundreds of times you know, whenever she was just on the train, there she would do it, that we can carve out, people, a lot of people feel like, well, if I don't have an hour or two hours to like devote to this thing, then it's not worth even opening it or starting. But if we consistently devote half an hour or 15 minutes every day or twice a day or every weekend or whatever it is, eventually you'll have a whole lot more on whatever it is you're trying to do than you would if you hadn't been doing all those little chunks. Yeah, I love the idea of those pockets of time because they're kind of all around you. It's the thing that you don't notice. You can easily waste 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes around you. But I oh, guess I like if this. you're... Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you're there and you're kind of, you've got your drone and your values, <laughs> you can use that time more efficiently, more effectively. Um, which kind of brings us on to that bit of like other tools and practical things. Um, so of all those people that you spoke to, um, I love there are a couple of stories about how people use actually the clock of the time of their day differently. And there's one woman who you spoke to who uses the time when everyone else is asleep to get her work done. I'm not quite sure when she sleeps herself, but. <laughs> so her routine was she's an artist and she has small children and trying to get focused time to really work on, she works on large scale art projects that take a long time. And what she found she was doing was pulling all-nighters and basically like college style, like staying up late and then not just staying up late like midnight or one or something, but staying up till like five or six a.m., like staying up all night. And the thing about this is that most people, like the vast majority of people who aren't 22 years old who hear this are horrified. They're like, that is the last thing I wanna do. But every now and then I tell someone this story and they're like, eyes light up, they're like, oh, I could do that. That could work for me. Because then she would take the kids to school in the morning and go home and crash at like you know, 9 a.m. and take a nap or whatever. Um, and she found that that was the only time she could have uninterrupted, really, and she needed like a long stretch of uninterrupted focused time to do her work. And the reason I talked to so many people for the book mm -hmm. is I was, I wanted things that wouldn't work for everyone. Right. You know, I wanted those quirky, idiosyncratic things that are like, one person in 10 is gonna read it and think yes, and the other nine, fine, it's not for you. You don't need to do that one. Turn the page to the next one, there's plenty. Uh, you know, that because people are so different and the way that we function within time is very different. Um, how we function in time yeah. is <laughs> hoping that we function to our maximum capacity brings us around to the idea of productivity and how we use our time well and efficiently. And actually, there are quite a few things in the sort of final section of the book um, where you pull together really a list of, I want to say, like 15 lovely little ideas that you can try yourselves. Um, things like put it on the calendar, sync your calendar to the to-do list, trust your system. Um, was there anything in this list that I'd love to unpack a little bit more with you that you've tried yourself and have been surprised at how effective it is? I do almost all of it. Right. Like, <laughs> wow. I, I really had to resist just writing a book of like all the things I do, which I figured is not that interesting. Like it's just because it's idiosyncratic, it's what works for me. But I have been saying as I've been, you know, doing some interviews for the book and talking to people and stuff, like if they put on my tombstone, she only checked out email two hours a day, like I would be happy because I think Reducing the amount of time you spend on email is the number one thing to get back your time for 
important work. Um, other things for other parts of your life, but in the work and creative work part of your life, like email is the soul killer. The, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, yes. I love the idea also of putting your big goals on the to-do list, yeah. like not just the I, take the cat to the vet, but right. I was. I wonder if I, I wonder if I can. Your big goals. How do you decide what your values uh, are for the day? How do you disseminate that into a sort of to-do list that kind of makes sense for you? I think that's a really delightful um, opportunity to kind of really revalue and your your, your time together into your diary. Um, Whilst you're looking for that quote, the other thing that you, you, you mentioned, um, and it's the sort of opposite of the idea of procrastination and prioritization, is that very important thing that none of us do very well, and that's spending time on nothing. I really kept thinking as I was working on this, I'm not, and I say this in the book, I don't want to turn you into like a task-completing robot. Like The point is not to do things more efficiently so that you can do more things, so that you can do things more efficiently, so that you can cram more in, so that you just become more busy and more stressed. Like that is exactly counter to what we're trying to talk about here. That in a perfect world, if you were living your life more efficiently in many areas, that would open up time to do nothing. To sit you know, out here by the water and look at the water and eat an ice cream cone or something. You know, to just breathe for a minute. And for some people, that means doing something like yoga. For other people, it means taking a walk or just people watching. You know, and that's the stuff that you can feel when you first start talking to people about this stuff, like such an out of reach luxury. Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's just, I'm never going to be able to do that. That's <laughs> insane. But the point of fact is, is, again, it's a pocket. It's not that long. It's mm -hmm. maybe 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying, you know, you got to spend the whole day eating ice cream. That would be unpleasant. Like, <laughs> but taking that little breathing room, mm -hmm. I think, both makes you more productive and effective when you are trying to get things done and makes the whole thing feel worth it. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, what are, you, what are you just trying to be like a cog in a machine? Um, I was gonna. I was trying to find something you were talking about earlier about putting the big goals on the to-do list, mm -hmm. um, and you've got to leave this one off, of course, with a famous quote by Annie Dillard: "How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives." Um, but that I was reading this to my husband in the kitchen the other night. I was like, "Hey, I wrote something good. This is good. I'm gonna read it to you <laughs> because I feel like this is the perfect." explanation of what we're talking about, that um, if we only ever put the piddly, nitpicky stuff we're in danger of forgetting onto our to-do lists, order toddler socks, pay water bill, ask Juan in accounting about that expense report, hard boil the eggs, sign up the kids for summer camps, email the site administrator about the fundraising program, weed the clothes closet, buy more paper towels, shop for an anniversary gift, work on next month's client presentation, phone bank for the mayoral candidate, replace the light bulb, then those things will quite truly and literally take up all our available time. And that instead, if we are putting the big things, the big dreams on the list, if it's write the novel, go to Paris, whatever it is, you know, if that's on the to-do list, of course, you're not going to put a tick box next to it tomorrow, oop, went to Paris, you know, like, that's not how this works. But maybe you spent 15 minutes mm -hmm. looking at the price of plane tickets, and then maybe tomorrow you spend 15 minutes figuring out how long it would take you to save up for those plane tickets, and then maybe the next day, you start putting into place your little financial plans so that you can save the money to buy those plane tickets. You know, and that as you do the little steps, it is actually getting you closer to these big dreams that otherwise will just you know, sit out of reach down the road forever. I like how you talk about um, 
making time meaningful and not just something to be slogged through. I feel like actually, you know, kind of doing the fun stuff and getting your to-do list and making sure that's aligned with your values is, is living and making time work for you. Um, I wanted to actually just sort of center us back into this room now with everybody who we're sharing this space with. Um, because we're in a, a, a community of people that are making things. We're all busy being productive with our time. We're either giving back to our communities. We are making families. We're making products. We're making books. We're making art. We're kind of making things that have, if you like, time and a life beyond our time here, which I think is also quite an interesting idea about how uh, you create value from your time. And actually, uh, the sort of art and book side of things is how we first came to meet when I came across this lovely other nugget as well, how art can make you happy. Um, this is something that uh, Bridget wrote. Uh, came out in 2016, 2017. And it's been a great bestseller and has sort of started a, a series for you, uh, which is why we're continuing on with this how time is on your side. This is the first one in the series. This is the fifth. There are three in between from other authors. One is about poetry, one is about music, and one is about storytelling. And there's one coming out in the future about television, which I think is going to be super cool. Um, but I got to write the first one and the fifth one. And what's lovely about this book is really how you talk about how art can be a tool for empathy and all those sorts of things, which I find really interesting. And actually, it started a conversation up between us initially um, around the idea of uh, things around the, the product that we're launching tonight, the Artful Method, which is an app that gives you the tools really to pause and reflect and grow through looking at art as a mindful practice. Um, so it's wrapping in that whole idea of creativity and um, kind of giving something back that will live beyond you, I suppose. Um, what I wanted to end with is actually a quote that came from a conversation that, that we had when we first came to this space together. I'm always really interested in you know, which artists or books are, are you interested and drawn to at the moment. I sometimes feel that that is a sort of way of really connecting with yourself to think about what's on your mind at this, at this particular moment. And um, interestingly, you chose Chuck Close. Uh, the American artist, um, and I, I'd love to read the full quote to you, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, put you on the spot, and invite you really to sort of think about what drew you to this particular quote. Chuck wrote that uh, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. And the belief that things will grow out of the activity itself and that you will, through work, bump into other possibilities and kick open doors that you would never have dreamt of were there, sorry, that you would never have dreamt of if you were just sitting around looking out for great art. And the belief that process, in a sense, is liberating and that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every day. Today, you know what you'll do. You could be doing what you were doing yesterday and tomorrow, you're gonna do what you did today. And at least for a certain period of time, you can just work. If you hang in there, you'll get somewhere. <laughs> Um, like, why is that quote not in this book? It should be in the book. Uh, <laughs> so good. Uh, but I think there are fantasies that we have about how these things are going to work in our lives. And we have this fantasy of the artist or the any kind of creative person, you know, sort of, 
I don't know, floating around in a haze until inspiration strikes them like a lightning bolt and then they run out and go and do this amazing thing. And almost no one has a story like that. Almost no one who ever made anything great came to it in that manner. Sure, people have had flashes of inspiration and insight, that does happen, but then they have to go and sit in a room somewhere and actually work on it day after day, whether they're in the mood or not, or they're not gonna get it done. And I love the idea that inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious and adorable. And I, don't, I never thought of myself as a huge Chuck Close fan, but that quote made me relook at his work mm -hmm. because it's, if you're not familiar, it's um, very repetitive. Like he'll make a, a portrait, but it's made out of all these tiny little sort of pixelated squares. And, you, and it's painting, so like the idea that he's sitting there painting one little weird colored square after another, after another, after another, and he's very prolific. So he's truly walk, walking the walk on <laughs> what he's saying there. That, uh, um, yeah, it's a, a lovely, the, the final page of your book, you sort of talk about um, wrapping everything together really, um, and that we have the tools and resources and the smarts uh, the bigness of heart to choose to view time as abundant. I love the idea of actually being able to make time more abundant just by choosing to view it differently and to use it differently. There's um, so much in this conclusion that's like, I didn't know I was going to end up where I ended up when I was writing this book. <laughs> it threw me for a loop. But um, there's a writer named Tara, Rod Rod Tara Rodin Robinson, mm -hmm who I had read an interview with, who had written a book about time being abundant. That was her mm -hmm. concept. Um, and she's, in this article that I read, she said, I came to realize that the entire field of personal productivity is rooted in this lie of scarcity. But the truth is, time is an infinitely renewable and inexhaustibly abundant resource. And then I go on to say, when you first read Robinson's words, you will probably want to punch someone in the face. <laughs> Even after all we've talked about in this book, it would be pretty amazing if you didn't. You want to say, no, time is not infinite. It's not abundant. It's finite. That's the nature of time because we're going to die. Like, we only have so many hours and days and months and years. Like, that is reality. But slowly but surely, those words stuck with me. I was very mad at this person who I've never met when I first read them. But they sunk in, and I started to think it's not about whether time is finite or infinite or abundant or scarce. It's how you choose to view it. Not in the sense, I want to be very clear, not in the sense of like the power of positive thinking or mm -hmm. the secret or any of that nonsense. Like, not like, oh, if you believe it and walk around, you're going to like roll in money because you thought about money a lot or something. Protect. But <laughs> not the law of attraction. <laughs> but that we can choose to a large extent how we decide to think about these. Things. And if we think about it as an insolvable problem, it will remain an insolvable problem. Like we will, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, like no question. And if we have the audacity to imagine time as abundant, mm -hmm. it can start to feel that way, little bit by little bit. Amen to that. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I really hope that you guys take the time to uh, take the book home and uh, digest it with uh, it's a, quick read. a little more. Well, that's what's <laughs> so lovely about it, but it's dense. There's a lot going on here and a lot of things to trigger ideas about how to spend your time. 
Um, but I certainly didn't want to be like, oh, you don't feel like you have enough time? Yeah. Here, read this 400-page book. Like, you know. That's the beauty of the how-to. It's, it's, yeah, it, Short it, and sweet. something in there for everyone. Um, I'd love to open it up to the floor yeah. for any, any questions, questions that anyone might have about Bridget and uh, her work in all the different spheres of her life. I believe you said that you recommend that we try to keep our email used two hours a day. I'd like to hear how you imagine how you how make does that, that work? happen yes. and how we might do that. Because that seems virtually impossible for me, but I you haven't had my mind open yet. I know. I thought book. it was, too. I totally thought it was, too. And, I mean, obviously this is more applicable in some industries than others. You know, different jobs have different expectations about email usage and what have you. But I think for many people, there is an expectation that you're basically on email all day and answering emails all day. And that sucks so much of your time away from any other, doing any other kind of meaningful work. Um, so the first most important thing to do is turn off all the notifications. You can't have little windows popping up telling you you have an email or little badges or anything of that. That's all got to go away, and it is all turn offable. And then you have um, your calendar, and you have a half hour in the morning and an hour at midday and a half hour at the end of the day. The half hour in the morning is not your first half hour. You have an hour of meaningful work first, then a half hour of email. I mean, this is I'm getting this. You asked, so I'm going to this level of detail. It's in your calendar. It's a different color than all the other appointments in your calendar and is locked. Like, it stays there, you don't move it, you don't change it, you do it at those times. Uh, now granted, of course, sometimes you might have a meeting and you have to move it or whatever, but basically, that's when you check email. The rest of the time, your email program, I like to have it open to my calendar. So I can, and I put my to-do list into my calendar, I talk about that in this book as well. Like, all your other to-do items are in there as well. But even if you're not doing that, you just have your calendar up so you can see, oh, where do I need to be at two o'clock? What's happening in my life? Or if that's too tempting, you shut the program down entirely until, <laughs> you know, one o'clock or whatever time it is that you're supposed to check it again. It is life-altering. Everybody can wait three hours to get an email back. Like, Unless you work in truly a life and death situation, <laughs> which maybe some people do, but not most of us. And if you don't, like, the lag time is hardly noticeable. Almost occasionally someone will say, I sent you an email about that. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and the time you get back for other work is remarkable. So do it. I advocate. <laughs> I thought there was another point that um, you've got a quote from William Blake, another artist in here, that says, think in the morning and act in the noon. Almost everyone, even those of us, and I very much count myself among this number, who are not morning people at all, even us, your brain works better in the morning and your body works better in the afternoon. So, like, to the extent that, I mean, you know, some jobs are almost entirely mental, some jobs are almost entirely physical, but most jobs do have a bit of a mix of both. You know, you think, I need to really sit and concentrate on this. Should be in the AM. I need to walk around and talk to a whole bunch of people about some different items. That should happen in the afternoon. Like anything where you're using your body at all, even if it's just walking over there to talk to someone. Uh, because in the afternoon, otherwise we get sleepy, like little babies who need naps. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, I like the idea also that, that uh, Simone Wheel, you've quoted here as well. It, and it's that idea of actually giving people your time. Like we hold on to our time as a precious commodity, but we kind of make sure that we share it with people. And you've got a quote from here, here that says uh, that, that attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Really, the idea, like the idea of giving other people and other parts of your time close attention. Um, can you put that in your diary? Does that look like? Does that look like the blue hour at Shack 15, when uh, the laptops go away and everybody's here gathering around the bar that will soon open? <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, thanks so much. Does anybody have any other questions for Bridget? Yeah. I have a question. Hi, Bridget. Thanks Hi. for sharing all of that with us already. Um, you know, acknowledging that you have a well-developed relationship with time, <laughs> is there any time in the past, in your path so far, that you wish you could have back, that you spent, and, you, and even knowing what you know and having, you know, likely come to terms with all the time that you've spent anywhere, that you just think, well, fuck, that was a massive waste of time. <laughs> you know, so to speak. Not... A massive waste of time. There was always a point to it in the end. Like I had a really crummy job for two years, but it led to a really great job. And I don't know, I didn't know how else to get that great job, but to do the crummy job for two years. Um, and I, not where I thought you were going with the question, but where my mind was going when you started in terms of time you'd like to have back, all bets are off if you have an infant. Like. <laughs> Nothing in this book applies. Nothing anyone will tell you about time management applies when you have a child in your house between the ages of like zero and 10 months. Um, you know, and that is time I would love to have back. My daughter's nine now. But because it was fleeting and because it was sort of horrible. I mean, it is sort of horrible. You're sleep deprived. It's like kind of gnarly. But once it's over, you miss it. You know, that... I think the regrets that we have about time, for me, are less about time I wasted and more about you know things, memories, like things I'm not gonna ever get back, things that aren't gonna happen again. Um, and that's why I do think that kind of mindfulness is really important because you better appreciate while it's happening because some things are like once in a lifetime. Well, they say that yeah, that, that really memories are the things that um, give you the greatest amount of happiness. Making time to make those happy memories and having those as a trigger that you can constantly come back to, the things that really keep your cup full. So uh, it's nice to have those pauses to make happy memories together. I feel like we've made some happy memories here <laughs> this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, okay, so this could be because. I have a friend who's about to give birth, and so I've been watching a lot of like babies on Netflix and <laughs> learning about babies. But it's, you know, you're talking about that, and I was just watching a show where they were talking about the development of the brain and, and the concept of time, and it's almost as if as we progress as humans, we are still learning how to function within this thing we call time that we've put upon ourselves. So, you know, that's a very esoteric question, but I mean, just, I kind of want to know your thoughts of like, is this another stage of us learning time? And maybe when we're 50 or 60 or 70, there's going to be a new way of 
processing time? I think, yeah, I mean, I am personally such a fan of getting old, <laughs> getting older, aging. <laughs> like, that societally we say, like, that's a bad thing. Oh, God, especially if you're a woman. But you get such a better handle on things. You start to understand things better and you start to own your own self so much better, at least I think. And I think that extends to time and to all kinds of areas of life. But it is true that this stuff gets philosophical and heady really fast. Like when I said I was writing a book about time, a lot of people were like, think, they're like, I don't know, they're thinking about like Heidegger or something, I don't know. But they're like, oh, like the nature of the universe and time, and I'm like, no, like how to stop checking your damn email. Like, <laughs> but both things are true. There's, I didn't put it in the book, but there's a, a really great quote from Einstein, which says, the purpose of time is so that everything doesn't happen all at once. <laughs> and that we have to understand things liter linearly because that's how our poor little human brains can handle it. <laughs> That's a very impressive quote. I, I also think it's very interesting too. I mean, time is a cultural construct of like people even in other countries experience time differently. And maybe we are predisposed here in Western culture to grind it out. Um, so books like this are hyper relevant to us and thank you for, for doing that. I'm sure there are places in the world where people would look at this book and be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Please, a round of applause for both Lucy and Bridget. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com. Connect with us on Instagram or visit our website at shack15.com.